All right, we are going to do a what is traditional to Eternal City on the last Sunday of the year, which is we're going to look forward to the next year together. And though what I'm going to preach on today uh, can't be accomplished by a sermon, my hope is that what vision I'm putting forward here, we can continue to revisit kind of week by week, month by month, and put into practice throughout the year and see what God might be pleased to do. So what we're going to talk about is creating a culture of building up. Creating a culture of building up. And by culture, I mean in this church, what is the flavor of Eternal City Church? What is it that people experience when they encounter us as a group? And what is it like when people encounter individual members of Eternal City Church? My hope, and which is a biblical hope, which I'm going to show you, is that we would be a culture that builds one another up, that encourages one another, that seeks to put the other ahead of ourselves, In other words, to seek to advance other people beyond our own advancement, to build up, to encourage. And I think that if we could create, by God's grace, by God's power, that kind of culture here, that would be magnetic and attractive because the culture that we live in outside of Eternal City Church is one of tearing down, one of hyper-criticism, one of fault-finding, one of nitpicking, one of trying to see the downfall and the overthrow of others. And then we can kind of stick our foot on someone else's chest and feel victorious, even if we've never met them or if we don't know them. We just, are, the culture we, we live in in America is one of just, I want to see you fall. That makes me happy and feel good. Okay, if that's the culture we live in outside the church, I want the opposite to be inside the church. And I don't mean inside the building. I mean inside the hearts of the people. And that multiplied by all the people will create a culture. You with me? Okay, now that vision that I just kind of put forward briefly is biblical. That's not a motivational speaker's kind of like territory. We don't have to go to Barnes and Nobles and visit the self-help section to try to create that culture. The Bible is full of what I just put forward to you. And I want to I ask you, did you know that? Did you know that this is actually what is supposed to be normal Christian living? But it's so foreign, I think, to most of our Christian experience that when I say something like that, you're like, have you been reading Joel Osteen? I hope that didn't come to your mind, but I know it came to Eddie's mind because he's looking at me thinking like, you better not break out your best life now, bro. You better not do it. Those who were supposed to get that got that. If not, don't Google them, okay? Just don't. All right. Looking forward to 2022, what I would love to see is a culture of upbuilding. Here's here's the key text that we're kind of looking at here. It's in Ephesians, and it's Ephesians 4.29. Now, before we dig into this, I want to remind you, we did go through the book of Ephesians verse by verse by verse by verse. It's in the archives if you're interested. But the first three chapters of Ephesians is 
what Ray Ortland would call gospel doctrine. It's heavy theology. Then chapters four through six are what flows out of gospel doctrine. It's how we're supposed to live. Okay, if you believe these things about God and you believe these things about the Bible and you believe these things about the people of God, then chapters four through six is how you must be living. If you have one through three of Ephesians, the heavy theology predestined before the foundation of the world in Christ, you know, all things before the foundation of the world mapped out and you love that, yet chapters four through six, which talks about loving one another and forgiving one another and not letting the sun go down on your anger and not letting corrupting talk come out of your mouth. If you love one through three and you're like, yes, but you can't stand and can't live out chapters four through six, there's a problem. Okay? There's a problem. There's a disconnect in your Christianity. If you're all about the doctrine and the truth and the understanding and the depth, but yet you don't have any of the practice that should flow out of the depth and the theology and the doctrine. Amen? And so for us who love to dig and mine the scriptures, it's dangerous for us because we often miss the practice end. What we want to do, what I'm hoping for Eternal City, is that we are both a heavy theology, heavy doctrine, but man, do we live out our theology. We not only believe the gospel and proclaim the gospel, but we display the gospel by our lives as well. What does that look like? Quick to forgive as you've been forgiven. Love covers a multitude of sins, just like the love of God in Christ covers our multitude of sins. And I could go on, but we have a whole message to do. So Ephesians 4 starts this kind of orthopraxy, meaning orthodoxy is right belief, orthopraxy, praxy is practice, right practice. Okay, so this is right towards the end of Ephesians uh, chapter 4, but listen closely to this one exhortation. If you read it in context, there's just command after command after command after command, but they're not just isolated commands, sometimes like the Proverbs or isolated Proverbs. Rather, these are flowing out of the theology of one through three. Everyone with me so far? Okay, from now on, I'm just going to fly, Okay. All right, so I, I warned you. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. I would add to that, maybe if Paul was alive in uh, 2021, he would say, <laughs> he would say maybe, let no corrupting tweets escape from your thumbs. Okay? Uh, I don't have Twitter on purpose because as it's been described, if, if, if certain social medias were like rooms, if you would go into the room of Twitter, chairs would be flying and it'd be like a riot. I don't want to go into the riot room. Okay? I want to go into the room where there's like a nice fire and like cinnamon candles lit and some good chai tea and maybe even some lo-fi hip-hop playing. Anyone else? Is that just me? All right, that's my vision of peace and tranquility, okay? For you, it might be, I don't know, death metal with like a bonfire and like the room's on fire. We, we should talk if that's your vision, but okay. Let no corrupting talk or tweets come out of your mouth or from your thumbs, okay? I inserted the Twitter piece. But here's the contrast. Rather than that, do this. Only such as is good for building up. 
Hmm. No corrupting, only upbuilding. That seems pretty black and white, doesn't it? What will come from this? As fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, grace is unearned, undeserved favor. You don't deserve it, but you get it anyway. Most people, I'll admit, don't deserve to be built up. But keep in mind, this is grace here. You say, you don't deserve me encouraging you. You deserve me to slap you. (laughs) That's not grace. That might be justice, but this verse isn't about justice. You see that? Okay, upbuilding and encouragement is about grace. And we only know grace because grace has been given to us in massive amounts. An overflow of grace is yours in Christ. Your many sins taken from you as far as the east is from the west. Unearned, undeserved, demerited. Now, let's dig in to the, to the words. That word corrupting there, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. That, that word in the Greek means rotten, worthless, bad, not good, unwholesome, or diseased. Now, I want you to, I'm going to ask you to do a lot of inventory of your own personhood tonight, okay? Think about yourself and the amount of words you either say or post on a regular basis Would some of them or a lot of them be characterized as rotten, worthless, bad, not good, unwholesome, or diseased? Now, I have studied in the past what's called the Word of Faith movement. How many of you have studied the Word of Faith movement? Okay, the Word of Faith movement was very popular in like the late 90s and early 2000s. It's kind of died off in popularity because I think a lot of people have become hip to its shenanigans, if I could just put it that way. But what is believed in the Word of Faith movement is words have power in and of themselves. They are the vehicle by which God created the universe. So God, with the power of faith, harnessed this force outside of himself and used faith with his words to create the universe. We, by extension, being made in God's image, have the force of faith available to us, and our words are the containers of faith. So if you speak corrupting words, you mystically create corruption by your words. If you speak good things into reality, you speak mystically good things into your existence. That is false. That does sound like that could also be in the self-help section, or the New Age section of the bookstore, and that's because it is, okay? That is New Agey, that is mystical, that's not biblical. However, let us not throw the whole concept out. Your words have massive power. Not that kind of power to create new realities out of nothing, like the law of attraction. Just speak it, and speak it, and speak it, and it'll come to you. How? Words have power. Okay, that's not how the Bible describes your words, but the, the Bible does say that your words matter. They do have consequence. They are weighty. Now, we can corrupt people with our words, or we can build them up with our words. Now, here's what the word upbuild or build up means. 
It's a word that actually comes from the construction realm. How many of you are builders in here or you have been in the past? Okay, I spent more than half my life as a builder. Outside in the cold, inside, lots of dust in the air, drywall, drywall dust, sawdust, screws, nails, hammers, on roofs. I've been out there. I've done the construction thing. Do you know what's interesting? It is way harder to build something than it is to tear something down. Any of you who've done any kind of construction, you know the massive planning, the, the architecting, the labor that goes into building something that's actually quality. And then, in a lot of instances, all you need is a strong guy with a sledgehammer, and you can do some massive deconstruction. Now, I'm not disrespecting any people whose livelihood is deconstruction. Okay? There are people who do that as a business. I'm not disrespecting. I'm just saying, from experience, it's a lot easier to deconstruct something than it is to skillfully, with wisdom and planning, construct something. And what can take, listen, decades to build can be torn down in moments. Therefore, what I'm urging you and what the Bible's urging you to do is not simple. It's not light work. It's not just, all right, we're going to do this now. Why? Because we said we're going to do this now. No. You can build and build and build and then with sentences tear down what you've built for 10, 20 years. You wish you could take the paragraph that you said back, but it's too late. You've torn it down already. That's the reality we live in. That's the power of words. Okay? But this word, build up, comes from the construction realm. It means construction, building, edifice. Or, in the moral realm, it means edification or edifying. Or, building up. Encouraging. Pushing someone forward to advance. So what we are supposed to do is not corrupt people with our talk, tear them down, deconstruct them, but rather we are to build them up, to edify them, to encourage them. Now, I want to ask a practical question at this point. How many of you personally have ever been railed on by somebody with loud voice, an angry tone, and just been told how terrible you are, and that just motivated you to move forward and progress, and I'm going to do better, and this is going to be fantastic? My imagination is none of us are motivated that way. But you know what does motivate? Hey, you're really good at that. Hey, I see this in you. I think if you practice this more often, you would be fantastic at this. Have you ever thought about this skill that you have? You show propensity there. I think with a little bit of training and practice, you would be amazing. Encouragement, friends, is powerful. But often, we imagine the opposite, or at least we practice the opposite. We think that if we can get angry enough and loud enough, that that will transform and change people. It will not. So think about it personally for you. How, how have you been transformed? Has it been by somebody railing on you or encouraging you in your life? Real transformation in your life probably not by people railing on you. It's my guess. Now, are there times where we need to rebuke? Yes. Yes. Rebuke is needed. 
Okay, that's also in the Bible. Reprove and rebuke, Paul says to Titus. That's what he needs to do to the Cretans. So there are times for rebuke. So I'm not talking wholesale, always encourage, never say anything that's negative, never challenge. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about the tone and flavor of maybe your disposition and the way you normally are. Let's say you're 90%. Could you be 90% building up and 10% rebuke, challenge, and maybe tear down if something does need torn down? There are things that need torn down, right? In fact, the house that was right across the street just got torn down. I watched it. It took a week. I mean, the big old claw machine out there just tearing stuff up, putting it in a dumpster. It's gone. But it only took a week to disappear. My guess is it didn't take a week to build, though. Friends, what I want us to do is become this kind of people. Even in our rebukes, friends, we could be encouraging. Did you know that? Hey, I want to encourage you. I think the way that you talk to so-and-so, I think you could do it better. That's probably more powerful than you idiot. Have you ever listened to yourself? You're saying the same thing, kind of. One is much more powerful. The other one makes you want to get punched in the face. when, When you use strong, you're a fool, you're an idiot, and then maybe you add a little bit of do it like me, You just put up a wall. You did construct something. It's called a wall between you and the other person. But that's all you constructed. Okay? Now, I want to confess that I have not always been good at this, friends. This is also something I am striving to grow in. And so I want you all, all of you, to grow with me in this. Yes? All right. So, again... Build up means construction, building, edifice, edification, or edify. It means to promote another's growth, wisdom, outlook, worldview, understanding, happiness, and holiness. Did you know that actually the more holy you are or godly, the more happy you will be? We imagine that if we could just slip in a few sins every now and then and it would be fun and life would be more enjoyable, it's the opposite. It's a lie from Satan that says sin will satisfy. And you know it doesn't from experience, but yet we bite that fruit over and over and over again when it's given to us. Over and over. All right, what's the next verse? Romans 14, 19, and 15, 2. We'll get here, but I just want to mention them here. Same exact word for building up in Ephesians 4. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Same exact word. Now, what some people like to do, maybe this is you, but I'm not talking to you if this is you. Okay? So I'm not directing this at anyone in the room. I'm serious about that. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace. Some of us want to drill in to the opposite of what makes for peace. We want to drill into the controversies. We want to drill into the flashpoints. We want to drill into what causes raucous and rioting because we kind of like it. As I've said before, many of us back in high school either were the ones trying to instigate a fight or we were the ones fighting, or we were saying, fight, and then everyone comes crowding around. And we just loved it. We're just, you know. 
That's not the Christian life, though. We are to pursue. So pursue means to actively engage and chase after. Pursue what? What makes for peace? Some of you should shut down your social media accounts. Because what's so attractive to you is the opposite of what's pursuing peace. You love the controversies and what people are mad about and what everybody's kind of all caps, all caps, I'm really mad, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And I just have to laugh at that. I'm sorry. It might help your soul if you would shut down your accounts, even for a month. Fast from Facebook and Twitter and maybe even Instagram for a month and see what it does for your soul. You won't die, I promise. You might come back to life. You might rise from the social media dead. Maybe. And for some of you, you're like, this doesn't apply. I'm not talking to you. But I know I'm talking to some of you. So rather than pursuing what makes for peace, we pursue what makes for conflict and controversy and fighting. Rather, we should pursue peace and mutual upbuilding. Now, notice the mutual. This isn't about self. This is to the church at Rome. And Paul is saying in context, hey, in the context of the church, you need to pursue what's best for everyone and what will be building up of the whole. And for a lot of us, we have our issue. And as long as our issue is being considered and addressed, we could care less about the whole. But that's not biblical Christianity, friends. According to Romans 14, 19, it's not. Mutual upbuilding. What makes for peace pursue? Okay. Now listen, why am I saying this to you? Because I want this to be the flavor of Eternal City Church. Especially in 2022. We've had enough of the fighting. We've had enough of the controversy. We've had enough of the gossip. We've had enough of the slander. Enough, guys. And some of you right now are saying, I'm not doing any of that. I'm not talking to you. And some of you are right now saying, I don't feel very upbuilt right now. I'm tearing you down right now. In order to build you up. You see how I just did that? Sometimes we need a rebuke. But I don't leave you laying on the floor in rubble. I get some good cement and some whole bricks and some good plumbing utensils and some good electricity. Or maybe I call my buddy Phillips and have him come do the electric. But we, we will build you back up. Romans 15, 2, same thing. Now, again, we're in Romans, okay? We're going through Romans verse by verse by verse. 1 through 12, I'm sorry, 1 through 11 is the heavy doctrine. Just like in Ephesians, it's 1 through 3. 1 through 12, heavy doctrine. 1 through 11. 12 through 16, application. Romans 15, heavy application. 14, heavy application. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So your neighbor is the neighbor in the church in this context. And so you are to be active and purposeful about building up your fellow church members. Same word in Ephesians 4.29. Same word in Ephesians 4.19. Build up your neighbor. Now, 
What about 2 Corinthians 10.8? Now, Paul to the Corinthians, it's funny, if, you, if you've studied First and Second Corinthians and you've studied Paul's relationship with that church in Corinth, he did plant the church. Uh, he did write at least three letters because he mentions another letter that we don't have in the Bible, but he might have wrote, written, uh, wrote more than three letters. We just don't know. But he had this unique relationship with the church at Corinth because he was always kind of fighting with them or they're always kicking against his authority and his leadership. And in in 2 Corinthians, he's basically defending his apostleship given to him by the Lord Jesus because they have received other teachers who are speaking negatively against Paul. And so he keeps saying to them, look, I am for you. I am not against you. Why are you turning against your apostle? Didn't I give up my life for you? And so he's defending himself in 2 Corinthians. And here he says, for even if I boast a little too much of our authority, now he's talking about his authority as their pastor, their church planting pastor, which the Lord gave for what? Building you up. So Paul says to the Corinthians, look, I have been given authority over you by the Lord, but do you know what that authority was for? To build you up. Friends, did you realize that by extension, this is what pastors or pastoral elders are supposed to do to the members? Their job is to build them up or to equip them so that they build each other up. We'll get there in just a second. But he says, this authority that I'm boasting of, yes, it was given to me by the Lord, but it's for you. The authority is for your benefit, for building you up and not for what? Destroying you. You see how Paul here is contrasting the two. We're either building up or we're destroying or we're deconstructing or tearing down. Paul says, look, I'm not about tearing you down or destroying you. I am all about building you up, Corinthians, even though you're trying to tear me down. I do have authority, but my authority is to build you up. And he says, I will not be ashamed of that authority that I've been given. Then moving on to chapter 15, 10, he does it again. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me. He's like, look, this letter was really strong. I understand that. It's a strong letter, but I'm doing this in order that when I come, I don't have to get up in your face when I get there. Because I will tear down if I have to, but I'm going to tear down in order to build up. That's what he says next. Look, that the Lord has given me for building up and not tearing down. He's like, look, guys, I'm all about building. I'm not about tearing down. Now, if you read Galatians, Paul is about tearing down some stuff. Right? Galatians, the tone is almost all caps, especially in the opening. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And you're like, dang, Paul. And, and, and like he comes out of the gate just kind of yelling with, with red face and pounding the pulpit. And the reason is, is because they are compromising the gospel. And so what Paul's doing in Galatians, he's tearing something down, but he's tearing down a false gospel. And he's asking the Galatians to let go of this false gospel and to retrieve the true gospel. He's not tearing them down. We are supposed to tear down false ideas and ideologies and worldviews, but we do it, listen, while not tearing down the person. 
It's so hard for us to do that because we link the person with the ideology, with the falseness, and we're like, not only is that false a problem, but you are. And so not only is your falseness an enemy, you are an enemy. Friends, we have to be able to pull those two things apart. And that's so hard for us to do. Because the ideology makes the person become a demon as well. And what are demons for but to destroy? All right, let's move on. So next, I want to... Now, now look, there's a lot of verses that we could go to, and we will go to a few more, okay? We will hit a few more. Uh, What I want to do next is talk about communication, okay? So communication is what we do when we talk with someone. That seems so plain, But do you realize that when you throw out any kind of social media or you shoot a text out or you have a conversation or right now this is a communication to you, it's a one-sided communication. Actually, it's not because I'm reading your body language uh, and I'm looking at your facial expressions and who's nodding and who's looking at their watch saying, hurry up. Keith's like, I don't got a watch. It's not me. (laughs) See, I am reading you. Okay. Communication is something we cannot help but do. And did you know that we even communicate without words often? Our looks, our facial expressions, our coldness, our indifference. We communicate all the time. We are a speaking people. We cannot help but speak. You know why? Because we're made in the image of God and God is a speaking God. He made us communicators. Now Jesus said, roughly, out of the mouth the heart speaks. And so you need to know this, friends. What kind of communication you give is a direct indication of what is on the inside of you. In other words, you tell on your own inner person every time you talk. We don't have to wonder. You tell on yourself by your words, by your communication. So keep that in mind. For yourself, when I speak... This is showing me personally and others what is on the inside of me. My words communicate my inner person. Out of the heart, the core of your being, the seat of your mind, will, and emotions, that's your heart, that's what the mouth speaks, whatever's in the heart. And so what needs to happen, actually, is that our hearts need to change, right? Because if our communication is bad, then that means our hearts are corrupt. And if our hearts are corrupt, then our words will also be corrupt. We need a heart change. We can't just decide, I am going to communicate encouragement. I am going to communicate words of upbuilding. I am going to communicate edification. No, the heart has to change first. Now, I I want to say this. This has to start with the individual. Okay, three applications I'm going to make here. I'm going to throw the cards down on the table. Number one, this has to start with you. And in fact, this can only start with you. If you think this needs to start with him, or this needs to start with her, or this needs to start with them, we're all in trouble. You are the only one who can take responsibility for you. And so you must say, this message is for me, 
and I need to address myself. That's the only way this culture is going to be created. If you address you first. Secondly, this needs to happen among spouses and in families. Okay? The, the communication between the families needs to be upbuilding rather than tearing down. It needs to be pursuing peace and building up rather than tearing down. And then it also needs to happen from the parents to the kids. That's number two. Okay? Now, you can only be responsible for you in the relationship, but if both spouses say, yes, I will commit to this, that'll make a difference. If both parents say, yes, I will commit to this for my children, that will make a difference. But only you can commit to it for you. You can't commit to it for your spouse. Okay, good. And then number three, I want us to commit as a church. All of us together to say, we will commit to building up one another as a whole church body. But listen, friends, it starts with you. It has to be you first. You can't say, well, when so-and-so starts or when everyone else does. No, you have to start or this will never happen. If everyone's waiting around for everyone else, we're all sitting here. (laughs) Someone has to go first. Let it be you. And all of a sudden, we're all moving in the same direction. All right. The individual, let me ask you three questions. Okay? Individuals first. So every one of you, including me, I'm asking these questions. When you think about another individual, do you think only of their negative qualities? Now, this is what comes natural to us. We always notice what's negative in other people. This comes naturally and easy. Oh, they're annoying here and they do this thing or the way they talk or the way they think about themselves or the way they carry themselves or their attitude. We always notice the negative in everyone else. Come on, I do it. I can notice the negative. You don't have to try. You don't have to hunt for it, do you? You don't have to say, let me put my negative finder glasses on and like, oh, now I see. No, you just see them. It's like big, blaring, bold letters, like surrounding them as they walk, just encompassing them. But you know what? You don't have to focus on that. So are you only focusing on the negative qualities in other people when you think about them? That's a, that's a question to ask. Number two question. When you speak about another individual, so now you're talking to someone else about someone else, do you speak mostly of their negative qualities? So you think about your speech to other people, about other people, is it mostly about their negative qualities or is it about their positive qualities? It's a good question to ask. Number three, when you speak to someone, are you personally thinking of ways to encourage them and build them up? In other words, is this in the forefront of your mind? How can I encourage this person? How can I build this person up? How can I seek to, by God's help and grace and power, move them forward to godliness, holiness, happiness, wisdom, pursuit of God, etc.? Most of us are not thinking that but I want us to. And so that's for the individual, okay? Number two, spouses, okay? Now listen, if you're not married here, don't turn off 
Because you will probably either one, be married someday, or two, you will be helping and encouraging other married people. Okay, because if you're a part of the body of Christ, you are obligated to build one another up. And a lot of people in the church are married. Okay? So this will help you if you are married and if you're not married. Now, I got some help here from Aaron Cerrone of CCEF, Christian Counseling Education Foundation. Okay, one of my favorite biblical counseling groups. He wrote an article that I highly recommend called Cultivating Praise in Marriage. Okay? Now, I also want to apply this principle or these principles he gives to individuals. Okay? So this is specifically for spouses, but this is also for individuals. Here's what he says. Here's what Aaron says. Genuine praise and verbalized thankfulness are like marital fertilizer. Think miracle grow in the soil of your spouse's heart. They have the power to help heal an ailing marriage or strengthen an already healthy one. Praise and affirmation spring from enjoyment. They flow naturally from delighting in and valuing something or someone. Now that applies to individuals, to other individuals, as well as your spouse. Praise and affirmation spring from enjoyment. They flow naturally from delighting in and valuing something or someone. This means that not, not valuing something or someone, not affirming our spouse is deeper than a matter of words. It's a matter of not valuing them enough. Okay, so in other words, if we're not praising, affirming, building up our spouse, that means we don't value them enough. If you individual are not praising, building up other individuals, that means you don't value them enough. He's right. We all, this, he got this from Lewis, okay? I'm a Lewis head. I know the roots of where he's getting this. Lewis said, C.S. Lewis said, we can't help but praise what we most enjoy. It spontaneously flows out of us and completes the enjoyment. When we eat a fantastic meal, we can't help but saying, this is amazing. Or you got to taste this. You got to try this too, right? And so we cut a little piece of the steak off and give it to the person. How many of you have seen the new Spider-Man movie? Okay, Eddie, would you recommend they see it other than one of the first scenes where he's in the, okay. <laughs> Me too. Fantastic movie, okay? I, I love it. Other than, you know, a couple of the suggestive scenes. Okay, other than that, it's PG-13, but still, it's not too much for my liking, okay? But man, fantastic movie. And so when I talk to someone else who's seen it, we, we can't help but praise it. Because what you enjoy, you will naturally praise. Okay? This goes for people. So what it means is we don't value the people in our lives or in our church enough to build them up and praise them perhaps even worse, maybe we can't stand them. Maybe we wish they'd go to another church. Maybe we wish they were married to someone else. Aaron advises us. Now, here, here's what he says to do about this, okay? So he doesn't just leave us like, man, that's terrible. <laughs> he says, here, here's what you do to change, okay? And I thought this was brilliant, which is why I'm quoting it here. Listen, here's what he says. He advises us to pray for our spouses daily 
and thank God for specific things they do or qualities we appreciate. Meaning, you have to be intentional about figuring out what positive qualities and good things they do. You naturally see what they do that's wrong. You don't have to look for that. But if you, if you are active about seeking out the good and the positive, and that not only goes for spouses, that goes for other people in your church too. And if you will pray, here's his, here's his advice, here's his counsel, if you will pray daily and thank God for those positive qualities, they will increase in your own being and you will start to value them more. He says, this will, among other positive outcomes, cause you to focus on the good in your spouse rather than the negative. And see, what we often do with people that we have problems with is we're hyper-focusing on the thing we don't want or we don't like. And actually, what then ends up happening is that negative quality becomes them. It's as if they merge with that negative quality and all they are to us is that negative thing. And so you think about that person and the only thing you can imagine is this attitude or this action or these things they do. And you can't separate the person from those things. And so they become, listen, they get so small as to become one tiny attribute in your mind. You're this to me. And you've minimized their personhood to this tiny little thing. But yet to you, it's everything. That's all they are. And that's all they do. And that's all they ever will be. Now, what if we did that to you? What if we found all your negative qualities and we merged your whole person with them and said, that's all you are? You wouldn't like that. That wouldn't be fair. That wouldn't be just, would it? Why do you do it to other people? We don't have to try to do this, do we? It just has to be explained in the way I explained it. And you're like, dang, what's the matter with me, man? Yeah, you're messed up. So am I. <laughs> Sometimes we need a mirror. And the mirror shows us how jacked up we are. You're like, man, my hair is jacked and my, I look like I haven't slept in a week and man, my clothes are all hairy because I have 10 dogs. And you need a mirror to help you out. Okay, this is a mirror. And yes, I'm tearing down, but I'm not going to leave you in rubble. I'm going to build you back up. Okay? So rather than putting the person in their one or two or three negative qualities and that personifies them, let's rather figure out what are their positive qualities? What do they do that's actually constructive? What do I like about this person? What encourages me about this person? There has to be something. Even if it's one or two things, you could drill into that and start to build that up in your spouse and thank God for that. And friends, I'll bet if you'll start there with those one or two things, all of a sudden you'll start noticing other things. Oh, there's this too. Oh, and there's that too. Oh, and there's this too. And pretty soon, you have a large pile of positive, good qualities, and the small negative qualities are very small in comparison. But see, what you do, and what I do, is we tend to look at the negative things, and that's all that's there. That's the only thing that's there. My little earpiece is flopping around. How is that not distracting to you guys? I can feel it. 
<laughs> Good answer, Keith. Good answer, Keith. Good answer, brother. And for my next illustration, Keith will come up and sing a song. <laughs> Thank you, Keith. All right, so Aaron then goes on to, to show how this is biblical. Okay, this is what Paul does to the Philippians. And I, just to warn you guys, I have no idea what time it is or how long I've been up here. The clock says 8540. I know that's not my clock person's problem, but I am in a wormhole right here, and it, it feels like I've been up here for five minutes, and I know it feels to you probably like hours, so I apologize. I'm in the multiverse right now. I have no idea where I'm at or what time it is. Philippians 1, 3 to 4, okay? Paul is going to do this to the Philippian church, and Aaron says, we can do this with our spouse. Here it is. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. That's prayer. He thanks God for the Philippians every time he remembers them. Look, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. Now, you, come on, Paul. You're telling me all those Philippians, no problems, no issues, no negative qualities, only things for you to remember and give thanks about? Now, if you know the letter, you know there's problems because he urges Eudia and Syntyche at the end to get along, and he asks his gospel brother to help and, and mediate the fight between them and the factions. So you know there's issues. But what Paul does is he's like, no, I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy. And by the way, this is a prison letter, meaning he's locked up. And it's one of the most joyful letters in the New Testament. It's pretty amazing. And then moving from verse one, he then in chapter, I'm sorry, chapter one, verse three and four, he then shows us how he does this. So it's not just that he does it, Actually, 4.8 says how he does it. Now, this is a famous verse, but maybe you didn't think about it in this context. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. One translation says, meditate on these things. In other words, for Paul, here's how he does this. In his mind, constantly rolling around in there are these qualities when he thinks about other people. See, what we often do, I know you do it because I do it, there's a YouTube channel in your mind of offenses, and for some reason you go back and you keep playing the offense over and over. You're like, play? And you watch it. You're like, mm, I'm so angry. And then it's over and you play it again. And you're like, mm, I'm even angrier. Play it again. And, and now you're ready to throw a cat. If you have a cat. Okay? That's how it works. But Paul's like, no, 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 no. Don't replay and meditate on the offense and the negative qualities. Why are you doing that? No, rather, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, anything worthy of praise, you think about those things when it comes to other people. That's how he does it. And so, friends, easy to say, hard to do. 
And I guarantee you, just because you heard this sermon tonight, you're not going to go home a changed man or woman. You are going to need, by the Spirit's power, to work at this and reshape habits and change old ways, and it will be blood, sweat, and tears. We do not change because we just say, I'm going to change. It's not how it works. I wish it was. I wish there was such a thing as like this magic machine like a microwave that you could just hit the popcorn button and stick yourself in there, the sanctification button, and then three minutes later you pop out and you're a changed man or woman. That's not how it works. I wish there was such a thing. Actually, there is. It's called death. (laughs) But I don't think we want to go there. We want this to happen this side of eternity, right? What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. So now Paul's saying, you remember when I was with you. Me as the example, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. So, to follow his example, I copied this from my notes. <laughs> so to follow his example, that's not Philippians 4, 8, and 9. This is my notes. <laughs> the scripture ends here. I hope I wrote something good now that it's on the screen. <laughs> so to follow his example, pray for your spouse and always give thanks with joy for something that is specific, praiseworthy, true, always. All right, that's pretty good. I'm glad I copied that and pasted it. What's that? You said I should have just pretended it was Paul because it sounded like scripture. It was so good. Is that what you said? Don't tempt me, Eddie. I'm just kidding. So friends, that is very practical and doable, is it not? You can, Philippians 4, 8, and 9 is in your Bible. You can go back to it. You can put it on your fridge. You can put it as the screen, you know, saver on your phone. You can put it all over the place as a reminder. And you can begin to put that in practice, use it as a grid to say, all right, are these thoughts in line with Philippians 4, 8, and 9 right now? No, they're not. So I need to repent. It just means turn. I need to stop doing this right now. I need to rather focus on what is praiseworthy, excellent, true, noble, and the list goes on. All right, now I want to move to uh, your church family, okay? So we, we talked about the individual Okay, and also with individuals, do the same thing. You can look at them, see their positive qualities, encourage their positive qualities, pray for them, and give thanks to God for their positive qualities in the same way you would do it in your spouse. All right, now, within your church, okay, within your church. Now, here is what I want to do, okay? There's the church, church logo, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, I want to quote before we go there, Ray Ortland Jr., okay, a hero of mine, met him one time in 2017. He deeply impacted me the first time I ever heard him live in 2012. I was in uh, North Carolina with my wife at an Acts 29 event. It was called a boot camp, uh, and, and Ray's sermon of all those sermons at that conference just punched me in a good way in the mouth. And ever since 2012, I have been a massive uh, Finn, that's probably not fair. I've been, I've been encouraged deeply by Ray Ortland. okay? And Ray Ortland just 
walks around as a walking embodiment of encouragement. Okay. If anyone is to be modeled outside of the Apostle Paul, it's Ray Orland. And you're like, that's a little tall. It is, but look him up. Okay. Ray Orland wrote an article called The Ministry of Encouragement. Okay. And here's what he said in this article. If we come to church only to draw strength from one another, that's all we'll get. And we will end up empty and angry at one another. Putting community first destroys community. Our encouragement is in Christ, and He is inexhaustible. That's kind of piggybacking off how Justin ended his sermon last week, if you remember. He quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who basically said, we love our idea of community more than we love actual, real church community. We have this idealized version of what church community should be, and we love that. And then we make a God out of it, and then we compare the real thing to that God, and we say, failure. Because it's a God. It can't match. And so here's what Ray is saying, first off. When you come to worship, or you come to other church members, you cannot be looking to receive the ultimate encouragement from them. You must be getting it from Christ. That's a good word. Because people are creatures who also need encouraged. You need to first be drawing encouragement from Christ. Okay? That's number one. Super helpful. Then, in another article called The Surprising Ministry of Encouragement, he unpacks 1 Thessalonians 5.11, among other verses. And here's what he says here. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is Paul's exhortation to the, to the church at Thessalonica. And he says, encourage one another, build one another up just as you are already doing. Now, the word encouragement here, Ray unpacks. He says, encouragement is what the gospel feels like. This is what I meant earlier by flavor. Like, what does it feel like to be a part of Eternal City Church? Encouragement is what the gospel feels like. It moves from one believer to another. The New Testament verb translated encouragement can also mean to comfort, to cheer up, to console, to speak in a friendly manner. Throughout, encouragement is about the life-giving power of our shared beliefs and our shared life in the Lord. That's the word there, encouragement. Jesus used the noun, encourage, encouragement, of this verb in John 14, 26. He called the Holy Spirit our helper. Same verb. That is our encourager as an empowering presence among us. J.B. Phillips paraphrased this title of the, of the Holy Spirit as someone to stand by you. Someone to stand by you. That's what it also means for you and your fellow church members. I am for you. I am not against you. I will stand beside you with all your flaws and failures because I too am loaded with flaws and failures. And we are in this together. And I want to encourage you and move you forward. And I am also being on the receiving end of that from other people, while ultimately receiving it from Jesus himself. 
standing with one another, bringing life-giving presence to one another. Now, Ray continues. He says, have you noticed the one another's that do not appear in Scripture, but sometimes appear among us? For example, scold one another, humble one another, pressure one another, for starters. You are, and I just want to say, that has been my church experience in the past at times. We think like this is what we're supposed to do. We imagine that if we can maybe force people into feeling bad enough, they'll repent. But you know what has happened when I've tried to do that? The person disappears. (laughs) No one wants that. Do you want that? Are you mightily encouraged when someone just comes up to you and just belittles you, berates you, and tears you down? You're like, that was awesome. (laughs) Give it to me again. You know, like, do it again. No, you're like, that was terrible. I never want to see you again. Unfriend. And then you know it's official. Like, they're done. I'm done with you. You're dead to me. Unfriend. Now, here's what I want to say, okay? This is just practical, and I'm done. I know we've been up here long enough. I can tell now. It's been too long. I apologize. You, listen to me, you are not losing, you're not losing if someone else is winning. Let me say that again. Do you realize that you are not losing if someone else is winning, especially in the body of Christ? Because friends, did you know that you are united to your brothers and sisters, and if they're winning, guess who else is winning? You are. Meaning, when one builds one up, the others get built up. It's not a zero-sum game here. We, we imagine like encouragement and upbuilding kind of like Olympic swimming. You know, Olympic swimming, there are the Americans, but among the Americans, only one gets the gold, and only one gets the silver, and only one gets the bronze, and the gold gets to stand above all the others. And we sometimes imagine that's what encouragement is like. It's like, look, I'm going to be dethroned if I start encouraging all these people. No, it's more like a team on an expedition. When we're going on an expedition to heaven, which we actually are, and then we make it there, friends, we all win together. And so don't think of it like competition sports where there's only one goal. No, it's more like an expedition journey to a new world. And we're pulling one another along towards that new world. And when we all get there, we all win, friends. Gospel encouragement has power. A culture that is hypercritical and seeking to always point out the wrong in others is either looking to build up the self, self-righteous, or guilty, seeking to highlight the flaws of others so that you might not feel so bad. So maybe there's two problems that you're wrestling with. If you don't do this or you can't do this, it's one of two things, I think. One, you are self-righteous and you don't want to be dethroned. It's called pride. 
If I build someone else up, I look worse. That's imaginary, but that's the way pride thinks. Pride thinks, if I put you ahead of me, that means I'm in second place. I need to be first. That's what pride does, but, but that's a false reality. You're thinking Olympic swimming sports, if I could just put it like that. That's pride thinks on a whole nother plane than when some of us win, we all win. When one of us wins, we all win. Okay? Or you're guilty, you know you're guilty, and you want to feel less guilty, so you point out all the flaws in other people so you feel less guilty about yourself. Friends, here's how the gospel speaks to each of those. Jesus is our righteousness. You have no achievement by which God says to you, I receive you, I accept you, you are mine. Not one good thing you do impresses him. I know that's hard to hear. Did you know that Isaiah 64, 6 actually says, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags to him. Menstrual cloths in the Hebrew. Say, like, dang. So I can't get God's favor by any good thing I do? No, you can't. Any righteousness that God is pleased with is actually the righteousness of Jesus given to you as a gift. And so, friends, we must flee self-righteousness, meaning any righteousness that you achieve on your own to get God's favor. Flee from it. Run from it. Throw it away. Did you know that this is actually what Paul does in Philippians? He just gives a list of his accomplishments and his pedigree, and he says, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I throw away all the things I accomplished on my own minus God. I throw away all of my family benefits. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin. He was the man. He was a Pharisee. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own. There it is. Paul says, I don't have a righteousness that's what I have achieved. I don't have that. That comes from the law or doing good things. But that which comes through faith in Christ, rather it's just received. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. The righteousness of Jesus gets to us only by trusting in what he accomplished on your behalf. In other words, it's received. Tim Keller says it so pointedly. He says, the righteousness we need is received, not achieved. It's Christ's righteousness, not yours. And so you can throw away all of your small accomplishments in comparison to Christ's massive accomplishments. You can look away from self to him and receive all the benefits in Christ. And then, friends, realize that your fellow Christians have done the same whether they realize it or not. They might not be to that understanding yet. They need to grow. If you don't understand that yet, and you're still looking at yourself all the time, you need to grow. It's about Christ. It's not about you. That kills pride. Because you can't look at self and put self up on the throne or put self up in a spotlight. 
It's about Jesus and what he accomplished. Guilty seeking to point out the flaws of others and the weaknesses of others in order to boost the self in your own eyes or maybe in the eyes of others. Well, did you know that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? While we were at our worst, Jesus was at his most merciful, most gracious, and most kindest. Did you know that? So while you were spitting in his face, he was on the cross dying for your sins. Therefore, on the cross, he took your guilt. He took all of the sins and their penalty on the cross. And listen, he absorbed them into his own body. And now you are guiltless in Christ. Do you still live a life of guilt if you're a Christian? I hope not. Now, if you're actively pursuing sin and you're in a habitual sinful uh, lifestyle, you should feel guilty. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the normal Christian life that's actively repentant, that is seeking to kill sin by the Spirit, Romans 8, 13, who is seeking to walk by the power of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit, the normal Christian life. If that's you and you still feel guilty all the time, friends, you need to drink some more gospel. Because Jesus was guilty in your place. Now, if you're selling illegal drugs and you're getting drunk every night and you're plotting on your neighbor and you're looking at porn and doing all the things you absolutely know you shouldn't be doing, you should feel guilty. You need the gospel, but you also need to repent. That's why you feel guilty. The Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Your sin, God's righteousness, and because of your sin and God's righteousness, judgment is coming. But friends, if you're repenting actively of your sins and you're not living in a habitual sinful lifestyle, you should not be living in guilt. I hope I made that clear. And so if we are guilty, but yet freed from our guilt in Christ, we don't have to then pretend we're righteous and pretend we're better than we are. Do you know what that means? That means that because I'm righteous in Christ and I'm supposed to be gaining a a better walk by the power of the Holy Spirit, that means I can come to you and confess my sins to you because I know I'm already not guilty. I can ask you to pray for me and to walk alongside me and stand beside me in my struggle, in my mess. And then, you know what? You can do that to someone else. Friends, we don't have to hide anymore. Did you know that Christianity is one of coming into the light out of the darkness? And that doesn't just mean the moment of salvation. We don't come into the light Forgive me all my sins, Jesus. I receive your person and work on the cross. I repent of my sins. And then we slide back into the darkness. No, we stay in the light. And what the light does is it exposes more darkness. And the brighter the light gets, the closer you get to God, the more your darkness shows up. Last, yesterday was Christmas and we lost a little piece to a toy. And I know under my couch is dirty and yours is too, so don't judge me, okay? (laughs) I don't sweep under the couch every day. I'm not one of those fanatics with the shop vac with the tiny little, you know, just sucking up every little hair. I don't do that, okay? But yesterday, we lost a little piece, and I got out the flashlight, the LEDs with like the six and then the the aluminum inside, and it's like, 
you know, it's like a 10,000 candle spotlight. And man, when you just look under there, you're like, yeah, that's dirty. Man, you turn that flashlight on, you're like, dang, there's another pet under here, you know? What is that? Is that a sock or is that a rat? What, what is that? I'm just kidding. It's not that bad. Kind of, but not that bad. I could tell it was a sock, okay? Put it that way. See, I, I'm free to confess to you my dirt under the couch because I'm not guilty in Christ. No, what I'm saying is the light, the brighter the light, the more dirt shows up, okay? And so therefore, the more we walk in the light as he is in the light, the more our sins are going to appear to us terrible, the more then we can confess them to others, and then the more they can walk alongside us. Did you know that James actually said, confess your sins to one another? Pray for one another that what? You might be healed. It's actually a command of God that the Christians who are in a local church actually confess their sins to one another. You take your dirty laundry and you hold it out for someone else to see and you say, yeah, this is me. Will you please walk alongside me? Will you please encourage me? Will you please pray for me? Will you please not give up on me? And will you please not run away from me now that I've confessed this? And friends, if you feel like you're so righteous that I can't be around you sinners, you have no idea who you are. You have no idea how wicked that actually is, that very thought. Friends, self-righteousness is disgusting to God. And if we were going through the Gospels, I'd pull out the publican and the sinner story. And I'd say, remember the one who thought he was righteous? And he says, look at that sinner over there. God, I thank you I'm not like other men. And then he starts talking about his good qualities to God in a prayer. But yet the, the tax collector wouldn't even look up and beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God said, you know which one went home justified? The sinner. Because he knew he was a sinner. But the other one thought he was righteous. Only thought and so friends, we are all guilty sinners before God. That means we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same slime pit. And so we should all be trying to help each other get out of the pit. Don't imagine yourself out of the pit, looking down at all the wicked sinners stuck in their sin. You're the same. Friends, we are equal at the foot of the cross in need of a savior. All right, I got more here, but I know I'm way over time. And so I'm going to quit. Okay? Let us encourage one another this coming year. Okay? This is not the last time you'll hear about this, but I want this to be the flavor of Eternal City. Building up, encouraging, uplifting, confessing to one another, being honest, walking alongside, seeking the positive qualities, and letting them know verbalizing it to them, not just treasuring up all these things in your heart like Mary and Gabriel. No, you verbalize these things that you see to other people. Hey, I want to encourage you. I saw this, or I noticed this, or have you ever thought about this in you? Or hey, I see this skill, talent, ability, something God has given you. Talk to the person about what you see. Verbalize it. I'm not talking about flattery. Do you know what flattery is? Flattery is false upbuilding actually for the benefit of the self. It's manipulation. 
I'm not talking about that. The Bible never says manipulate one another and make them think they're better than they are. No. If it's real, tell them about it. All right, let's pray. And let's take communion together and remember what the Lord Jesus has accomplished for us, freeing us from our self-righteousness, freeing us from our shame and guilt, and freeing us to something, which is be the people of God who can upbuild and encourage one another, who can be about moving others forward by the help and power of God. I'm going to pray. And as the communion elements come around, um, please hold them. And we're going to sing All Glory Be to Christ because it's uh, a fitting song that we sing. No glory to us, all glory to Christ. If this does get accomplished by us this year, uh, it's going to be of God. Now, here's the mystery of growth and sanctification. It's our working and God's working. Meaning, it's not only God, but it's us by the power of God. You actually have to take some action. Okay? And so I'm going to pray now that God, by the Spirit, empowers us for this upbuilding that we are to do. And if He will empower us, and if we will actively be about this, I believe that God will change us. He will transform us. He will do mighty things among us. So if you could stand, I'll pray. And then we'll sing together, and then I'll come back out, and I'll lead us all in taking communion together. So uh, let's pray, and let's ask the Lord for help. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, Jesus, you died for us. We thank you, Father, that you loved us so much that you sent your one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. I thank you, Father, that we experience your kindness that leads us to repentance. Father, I thank you that you've given us this physical remembrance every week of Jesus' body broken and bloodshed for us. Father, I pray that because we are united to Jesus, not guilty in Christ, righteous in Christ even, that we would have your Spirit's help to build one another up. That we would be active about encouraging one another. Father, we can't do this by just deciding. We need your help. We need good practices. Would you please help us, God? Spirit, move on us. Blow upon us with your power. Give us a desire to see others as enjoyable, as worthwhile, as precious as they are to you, and worth our time to build up. Father, we thank you that you did not leave us in our sin, but you made a way. Father, encourage us by our song singing now and by proclaiming your death, Jesus, until you come. In Jesus' name, amen. Unless the Lord does raise the house, in vain its builders strive. Meaning that we could try to build something, friends, and build one another up and create a culture of encouragement. But unless the Lord is in it with us, we strive in vain.
And I hope that note was struck, but if it wasn't, that's a reality. One more thing about what you hold in your hands, friends. You hold a symbol of a reality of Jesus' blood poured out 2,000 or so years ago on a Roman cross for the forgiveness of all of your sins. All of them. Even the ones you're struggling with right now. Friends, Jesus died for all your sins and he wants you to have victory over them. He does. And so his body broken and blood shed was for your sins. And he wants you to escape them. How are you going to escape them? Not on your own. You need other brothers and sisters to walk alongside you, to encourage you, to build you up, to pray with you. That's what the body of Christ is for, in part. Jesus makes this possible. We are in Christ. Did you know that the communion, yes, we're communing with him, but we are doing this together, saying we are all in Christ. And so this is worship. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let us together proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. Let's eat and drink the body and blood of Christ. Unless the Lord does raise the house, in vain its builders strive. Meaning that we could try to build something, friends, and build one another up and create a culture of encouragement, but unless the Lord is in it with us, we strive in vain. And I hope that note was struck, but if it wasn't, that's a reality. One more thing about what you hold in your hands, friends. You hold a symbol of a reality of Jesus' blood poured out 2,000 or so years ago on a Roman cross for the forgiveness of all of your sins. All of them. Even the ones you're struggling with right now. Friends, Jesus died for all your sins and he wants you to have victory over them. He does. And so his body broken and blood shed was for your sins. And he wants you to escape them. How are you going to escape them? Not on your own. You need other brothers and sisters to walk alongside you, to encourage you, to build you up, to pray with you. That's what the body of Christ is for, in part. Jesus makes this possible. We are in Christ. Did you know that the communion, yes, we're communing with him, but we are doing this together, saying we are all in Christ. And so this is worship. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let us together proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. Let's eat and drink the body and blood of Christ. Father, we say thank you for the body broken and bloodshed of Jesus. You have made a way to you when there wasn't a way. 
Father, we thank you that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus, you said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, we thank you that we have found life in you. And your word is true, that it was not we who chose you, but you chose us. So we cannot boast in our coming to you. We cannot take credit for our belief even in you. Saving faith is a gift. Father, I pray, give us grace by your spirit for this coming year. Would we practice building one another up? Would we practice encouraging one another? Would we practice confession and asking for help, humbling ourselves to other brothers and sisters? Move on us by your spirit, Father. We thank you for another year with all of its victories, its challenges, its troubles, its sorrows. Father, we look forward to 2022 and what you're going to do in us, with us, and through us. In Jesus' name, everyone said?